Hello and welcome, friends. You're back. It's Hit Factory. And today we have two very special guests joining us from the premier sci-fi fantasy podcast, Podside Picnic. Carlo and Pete are joining us today. Hey, guys, thanks for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure. Wow, thanks. you really ups you really upsold us, uh, but thank you. Yeah, we, we can end it here as far as I'm concerned. That was, <laughs> was Thanks for perfect. coming on, guys. See you next time. <laughs> well, we're really, really happy to have both of you on. Um, yeah, that's the good news. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah, bad news. <laughs> the, the great news is we've got some excellent guests today. The bad news is we are talking today about the 1997 comic book adaptation spawn yes you may have forgotten it existed (laughs) i certainly had up until a couple of weeks ago Uh, but we are going to talk about it in full and i hope pull out a couple of, of interesting threads here because for as much as I personally disliked the movie, I, I think that there's a lot of interesting things happening here that we should absolutely discuss. But before we get too deep into it, I, I am interested uh, because our pod side people here chose the film. Carlo uh, or Pete, whoever wants to start, could you maybe talk a little bit about what led you to this decision? And also maybe what your history is with the Spawn character. I'll, I'll start. I will say this. Uh, Pete, are you okay with me uh, mentioning what the the previous selection might have been? Oh, no, I'm violently opposed. No, go for it, man. <laughs> <laughs> so the funny thing here is that, um, that Pete initially wanted to uh, talk about The Giver, uh, which is... Uh, Actually, this is the Giver, except with comic books, and um, and instead of being like scientists with a weird exoskeletal uh, armor, it's uh, hell. You go to hell with a weird exoskeleton. With, armor. I was gonna say with a weird exoskeletal <laughs> armor. With necroplasm. Necro necro flesh. Necro flesh, yes. Which sounds so metal until you actually see how it's carried out. <laughs> And um, I followed the comic book for a while. This was an image comic book. I might be wrong, but it might it feels like it might have been five years before the adaptation came out. Done by Todd McFarlane, who I am going to give a slightly hot take here. I'm going to say that Todd McFarlane is a proto-Zack Snyder in the sense that he is a complete sort of Chad type of guy who is amazingly dumb, has amazingly dumb ideas that he knows how to draw very well. He went off, he he told Marvel to go fuck off uh, and created uh, Image Comics, co-founded it with Jim Lee. And that opened the door for a lot of different uh, different artists and, and other people that had just become very disenamored or disillusioned with Marvel's uh, practices, the comic book company. This is way before the MCU was anything. Just the fact that, you know, you could devise or create a completely new character and it was just, yeah, it's Marvel's now. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> um, so Image Comics was very sort of creator-based. And uh, so we have him to thank, along with Jim Lee, for the co-founding of this. But, you know, uh, Spawn was sort of uh, a comic that he devised on his own. It was amazingly dumb, but sort of drawn very uh, in a very Todd McFarlane style. And since uh, then, I think uh, I'm going right off the dome here, but I think he sort of cashed out from his like partnership or he's just simply not really directly involved anymore. And he fucked off to do like his uh, figurine company for a while. Uh, and I don't know what he's doing right now, to be honest with you. Uh, he does actually make a cameo appearance uh, in this film. Yes, he is one of the, he's. The, I believe he is the 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 home the unhomed guy who is also abusive to the kid and gets the shit beat out of him by his own creation. Yeah. So kudos. He's Zach's dad. Yes. No, wait, yes. is he's he, he's not Zach's dad? The the other homeless person, right? Or is he Zach's dad? I don't know. No, I think he was the bully. I don't know that he was the parent. I'm not going to watch it again to find out. 
<laughs> no, no. I think if you're talking about the little kid that uh, complains about, uh, but it's rotten, is like, it's good enough for me. Yes. That is because the little kid says, no, don't beat him up. He intervenes and says, that's my dad. Uh, right. Uh, okay. <laughs> so he had, I mean, honestly, he had the, uh, like, on the one hand, he did a, a cameo in his own film. Uh, but he uh, placed himself in the position where he is being beaten up <laughs> by his own creation. So right. <laughs> he, he's got some issues. I'm, I'm going to guess. Yeah. We'll have to explore the psycho, uh, the psychology of that at some point. But. <laughs> some, some freaky, some freaky stuff going on. And we went, uh, like I went to go see this with uh, my RPG gaming group. Nice. Yeah, you know it. We we went to go see this amazing, amazing movie. I was interested to see John Leguizamo because he was really big at the time. Mm-hmm. And then I wasn't really that interested <laughs> when I started seeing him. <laughs> My turn? I was just... I was just gonna say, so Carlo, you're the sadist of the group. We can mm. we can uh, attest that this decision really all came down to you at the end of the day. Yeah, well, you know, I'll I'll take full credit for, or, or or blame for that. <laughs> okay, so my take on this is that this movie is interesting as a historical artifact because 1997 was the perfect shitstorm where bad taste. The ability to do CGI without the ability to do it effectively (laughs) and the ability to do cheap special effects all combined to make a remarkable panel of turd movies. Uh, (laughs) So you had Batman and Robin. You had Face Off. I love it, but it's a turd. Um, <laughs> you you had the guy who played Remington Steele as 007 like he was literally the worst the worst James Bond ever <laughs> Shock played Steele you had the postman and like the one of the movies that everybody shit on was Starship Troopers which was the best of the lot but you didn't yes. know that at the time because we liked eating crap for some reason <laughs> we love ourselves some Starship Troopers on this show I will say that Definitely a Verhoeven fan. We we have that in common. I, I, I think Podside aligns with you on this. But, like, the Spawn is like a microcosm of all those bad things. I mean, it's a fun movie. I enjoy watching it, even though it's stupid. But, like, these days, if you wanted to combine CGI with practical effects to make them look that bad, you would need someone incredibly talented to do it. <laughs> Gonna try real hard to make it look like it's 1997 oh. again. And you, you everything's those... also very wet in the movie. There's like the bad special effects. <laughs> there's like the CGI that's like half half in and out of like looking like old computer games from back then. But then also <laughs> they decided to just like hose everything down, so everything <laughs> is sopping wet the entire movie. Just like adds to your revulsion of of whatever you're looking at on screen. You know, you're right, and I didn't even notice that, but I did notice that they kept doing that Doctor Who tunneling effect, but they made it, like, dark. It made it look like you were going through an asshole for, like, ten minutes of the film. (laughs) Pete, you know, um, have you ever read Dante's Inferno? (laughs) By the way... You do know that the way to get out of Inferno is climbing out... Climbing out Satan's of an asshole. butthole. Climbing out of Satan's butthole. Yeah, well, I'm glad you guys said that because it occurred to me after I shot off my mouth. Like, I, I don't know whether you, you edit out profanity. No, no please. We go definitely for, don't. Okay. Go off, King. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, just to, to piggyback off of what you all are saying here, it, the movie was bad in its own right. There's, there's a lot here that seems like really intensely edited and and watered down and and there's there's like a kernel of an interesting concept and movie in here somewhere but but nothing all that redeeming about the execution here uh visually and cinematically and i you know i should i guess say if we're gonna you know historicize it and contextualize it a little bit the filmmaker here responsible for this this particularly stupid and talented person is a guy named mark az dipe um, who I guess was a longtime employee at ILM. So he had a hand in making the special effects for uh, Jim Cameron on The Abyss and on T2. 
and then also did some of the dinosaur work as well in Jurassic Park. So he's coming to it with, you know, a, a decent amount of experience in these visual effects under his belt. But you're so right, Pete, that like this is that moment where after being sort of like the tip of the spear for all of these like groundbreaking special effects, they learned how to do them very easily. And there was no longer any like envelope pushing. It was just how do we put whatever it is we, we can imagine on screen without worrying about like what it will actually look like or what the execution might might feel like to a viewer and it's it it yields some really fucking bizarre moments like the entire like final climactic battle in hell is <laughs> almost oh. like completely unintelligible so i had panic. no idea what was going on there you didn't get the version that has the little text boxes that uh, has the demon <laughs> it, it, it's it's the the i guess satan or or whatever the malbolgia i'll have you know Melbolgia. It's so funny because he, like the mouth doesn't even move in, in yes. tandem with the speech. No, Sometimes it doesn't move at all. It doesn't move at all. It's just hanging open. <laughs> like it, it was amazing because I was like watching this is like, oh shit. Like this is like, oh my God, like hell is just a, a series of disconnected floating mosh pits over lava. Yeah. <laughs> It's <laughs> exactly what it is. I will say though, it's it's interesting to bring up the fact that that the filmmaker came from T2 and The Abyss, both of which we all know here on this conversation have really wonderful um sort of like liquid metal or like you know just sort of like animating liquid and I could see some some pretty deft animation that felt like it was coming from that same technology, that same sort of um, space in the animation of the cape, which I actually like, I, I found to be pretty interesting and pretty, look pretty good for, for the year that we were, um, that the movie is from. There's that one scene and I'm just, I'm, I'm jumping into a detail here, but there's that one scene when Spawn is running up the side of the building after like coming to a gala and, and shooting people. And he uh, uses his cape to build a faux pillar against the wall that he's hiding on. It uh, It's like a weird power that he has that doesn't make sense. But the animation of that particular moment sort of caught me off guard. And I thought to myself, oh, that was actually kind of cool. And then, you know, you go back to trash. But... That the the cape itself, I think, has um, there are some flourishes of of some nice CGI there. Well, I we if we combine the two things that you, you focused on so far, there may be an explanation. Like the 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 director may have gone to his effects guys and went, I want a lot of water effects, and so they just turned around and like hosed everything down. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think you're right. That's right. I think you may be right about that, Pete. Yeah. We, we cracked it. Easier to animate off of, too, maybe, <laughs> you know? So. If everything's just slippery. Everything's just slippery, so it, it kind of just hides all of the uh, oh all of the effects and all the sort of, like, liquidy sheen of, of all of the CGI. Yeah, I mean, the cape ends up being, like, maybe my favorite character in the Is movie. Is the cape the star of the movie? <laughs> It's a precursor to like uh, to Doctor Strange, I guess, you know, right. where in that it's a little bit more grating. But in this one, he's he's there just enough, that cape, to, to yeah. let us love him without being uh, without being overbearing. I, I do want to be, you know, we could probably talk about just the, the effects and the aesthetic of this movie for a long time. But I, I, I want to shift for a moment to maybe talk a little bit about what the film is about <laughs> and, and, and the plot a little bit here, because. <laughs> At its heart, I think that this is a film that is about the eternal struggle between good and evil and answers the question for us and says, in this battle between ultimate good and evil, the arbiters of justice are still the beloved journalist of CNN and the police. <laughs> oh my God, I think I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> That's how we felt, too, actually, when we were having this conversation in the kitchen this morning. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I do want to say that this is very explicit that there is a definite link between 
one and the other, where uh, you have D.B. Sweeney in uh, possibly one of the <laughs> few roles that he had, you know, before the 2000s, like swallowed him or something, you know, directly feeding a, a network uh, reporter information. This is uh, basically would have been reported as sources say. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I like the idea of maybe, you know, like Edward Snowden, like accidentally catching this movie one night on on cable and then the next day being like that that does it like i'm 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 going to i'm going to call Laura Poitras and and Glenn Greenwald and become an enemy of the state <laughs> and and just like go from there you know like he, yeah DB Sweeney is like the original the original Snowden that, or... that would make the movie worth it right it really would that carving would, it'd be a cultural artifact we could all get behind <laughs> Beyond this, too, there is also, I think, one truth to the entire story, which is that I do, in fact, think that our intelligence community and the CIA are run by demons. <laughs> but, but, you know, in this case, too, like I and maybe, Carlo, you noticed this because I, I think in the comics and you can correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, but Al Simmons spawn is uh, actually explicitly a, a CIA operative. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. OK. And in this movie, they make up this fake organization called A6, which I'm sure uh, the real intelligence community had no hand in, uh, in terms of, you know, making sure that it wasn't a, a one-to-one mm -hmm. correlation between between the CIA and, and whatever this government agency <laughs> is in the film. I mean, uh, to be honest with you, like, I, I have to wonder if they even bothered trying to approach... Uh, the Pentagon for any type of funding, because honestly, like the amount of scenery chewing as a absolutely cartoon villain that Martin Sheen does in this <laughs> is amazing. I, I, I just chef's kiss. Also, full mane of hair and a weird, weirdly looking sharpied on beard almost. He had like a Tony Stark beard vibe going. It was very pointy. He he made me want to take up smoking again so I could have a an ashtray full of scorpions. That was amazing. <laughs> it was like an evil villain's version of like those calming sand gardens that you have on your the Zen you garden. Rake. The, the Zen, Zen garden, garden, but but with scorpions. But when you rake it, there's an asp hidden in it. Right. Watch out. Such a such a strange detail. Yeah, Martin Sheen is is one of like he's so bizarre in this film. Like the the intonation he's using, like the voice that he puts on that kind of like weird gravelly. He's as you as you say, Carlo. He's he's a cartoon villain. He is. He's just everyone in this movie is just grunting. Um, I was I was interested to see courtesy of. Uh, of our, our corporate overlord, Jeff Bezos, when we rented this film, they have like those kind of general trivia uh, little notes. And and apparently Richard Harris was initially cast to play um, Cagliostro. Interesting. He, he's he's frankly too too good for this movie. <laughs> um, and and the and the person they got to to eventually take on that role is is not great. He doesn't do a particularly good job with the material, but I'm not sure that the material could. Uh, that you could do a good job with it, uh, no matter who the actor was. Have you ever seen uh, Excalibur? I it's been a long time, but uh, but I, I very very faintly recall it. I have not. So that is actually Nicole Williamson or Nicole Williamson. I'm not sure how you pronounce his, his name. He was Merlin in Excalibur. He is fantastic. But I think that what you're saying, you know, I think the latter part of what you're saying is probably the case. All I remember of that film is Lancelot having sex in armor, which is unforgettable. <laughs> I'm watching it just for that. Yeah. <laughs> no, that that was Uther Pendragon, but that's, you know what? We could do that another oh, time, Pete. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. We'll, we'll break it down later. Have you ever heard of cod pieces, uh, Pete? <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, Nicole Williamson is fantastic as Merlin in Excalibur. He is just, he's, I think he's like a stage actor that they, they found for the role. Um, but in this, he is just, I, I'm imagining that he probably had uh, the same breakdown that Sir Ian McKellen had on the set of The Hobbit, you know, just like, <laughs> how can I act? <laughs> I can't emote to a tennis ball. It's Probably. so true. The writing is just not is not good. It, there there was this, this oscillation between 
you know, dialogue that was either too expository to the point of it just being completely ridiculous or stuff that was so overwrought and overhandled that it it didn't neither felt like words or sentences that people would actually say it just felt like a series of one-liners that you know the writers really felt like they had to get in there and John Leguizamo's character in particular I I love John Leguizamo I think he's super talented um and he's doing a lot of acting under that fat suit and all of the makeup and the the teeth so I give him credit for that but I wrote down at one point when I was taking some notes as we were watching the movie that his clown character essentially is just like an evil live action version of uh the genie in Aladdin where they have him (laughs) doing all these like breaking the fourth wall and making these like pop culture references and doing these different voices they're both in a cheerleader's outfit at one point like it honestly felt to me like someone was like oh yeah that's we'll just we'll we'll do something derivative uh and we'll just make him the genie it was like a cross between the genie and the mask the jim carrey Mm -hmm. movie like i felt like that's that's how they wrote this character and and I'm curious actually to know sort of what he's like in the comics if he's as if he's as cheeky as he is in the movie but yeah he was he was all over the place for me but my my thesis statement is that he's just the genie <laughs> in a fat suit. I agree <laughs> I, I I think my only note was like yeah we could have used maybe 60 percent less Leguizamo in that uh, it just sort of gets in the way of everything else because it, it feels like one of these things where the, the director was like, yeah, that was funny. Uh, give me something else. Keep keep yeah. going. Keep going. Yeah. Yes. And you're like, you're like, dude, come on, man. You got to have some structure here. Like you can't just have like five minutes of him just sort of like going off on some weird tangent. Well, and he keeps breaking the tension. I mean, such as it was. I mean, I never was invested in this plot line, but if it ever <laughs> happened... Like, that, you know, that, that clown would have screwed it up. I feel like, you know, with his character in particular, I had difficulty not only understanding, like, A, what was really motivating him, which, like, I'm, uh, you know, let's not overthink the movie too much, but I was interested <laughs> to sort of understand, like, okay, where are these p- characters coming from? And he was just all over the place. You know, he's uh, the sort of footstool of Malboja at one point. On the other hand, he's saying that it's his plan all along. There's another point where he has no idea what's going on and he just wants sort of mass destruction. That's That that was a, an ill-fated endeavor, me trying to follow that, <laughs> that, that thread. I, the way I see it, and, and I, I don't remember the comics very well. They're, they're not particularly great comics, but, you know, they, they and they're probably just... I, I was just reading them because it, it looked cool. Um, but the way I understood his supposed arc, it's not it's not there on the it's not there on the screen, that's for sure, is the fact that he had originally he was originally the one that was uh, going to bring about the the plan, right? The plan to end the world and have uh, supposedly the the armies of hell s- storm the gates of heaven. Hell of a plan, too. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure what he was doing in that alley all that time, but it, I guess he just got a little off track. I don't know. Just a touch. He needed. He just needed the confidence. That's what it was. Um, and so uh, he got passed up, and Spawn gets tapped for the role because he's better at it. Uh, I mean, uh, he is. He is a trained assassin, after all, for right. the CIA. I'm sorry, not the CIA. A six or whatever <laughs> the fuck the name is. <laughs> Um, so then, uh, he gets tapped for it and he, he now has sour grapes. So he's supposed to, you know what it is? This is a perfectly good nineties, uh, subplot, which could have worked much better. He is now the guy that has to train the guy that's going to take over his position. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, okay. That makes a lot of sense. Or in another sense, he is like Tanya Harding, basically. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, when you train someone to take over your spot, you do want to take a lead pipe to them, you know? <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to the, you know, A24 uh, spinoff here, Eye Violator, or oh whatever God. it's going to be called. I think I think that ship has sailed. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know. Well, you know, they were talking about a Spawn reboot, like, 
not that long ago, within like the last like four or five years, and uh, oh Jamie Foxx was supposed to play him. Well, you know, that's I did want to. I'm glad that you brought this up because this actually is the first uh, black actor that uh, portrayed in a superhero film, and um, you know, uh, Michael Michael Jai White. Michael Jai White. Yes. Why did they have to cover him with? I, I know why they covered him up with prosthetics because it's supposed to be accurate to the comic book. But God damn it, could we have his face? Totally, yeah. totally agree. I actually read, you know, some notes on this, and take this with a grain of salt. It's it's from Wikipedia, maybe it's apocryphal, but but it sounds right. That I guess in the comics, um, Terry DB D. Sweeney's character is also black, and that the studio was actually very insistent on them not making him a black actor for fear that it would just segment their their audience appeal too much that people would misinterpret it as being a quote black film um and that they would lose money on it so they had to like throw this white guy in there which breaks my uh belief in a you know there's a suspension of of disbelief that has to go into that where like there's this corny white guy taking over this family with like with this like you know hot like model-esque like ex-wife or this like you know like bereaved uh, you know, widow of, of Michael Jai White's like, she's not going to marry that guy. No. That's not going to yeah, happen. Yeah. Not believable for a second. <laughs> yeah, like, D.B. Sweeney is not not that caliber. I'm sorry, man. And, you know, Michael Jai White is someone who I was convinced for so long was a terrible actor because he, he just does a lot of, like, acting through his teeth with kind of like that, like, hard stare. And, and in this movie especially, just like everyone else, he's grunting a lot. His dialogue is awful um but then i saw black dynamite like five years ago and i don't know <laughs> so if good it's so good and like he is basically like a parody of all the characters he's portrayed in in other films and, and he's perfect and his comedic timing is brilliant yeah he's got like the self-awareness of exactly what he's known for mm. that works perfectly for black dynamite it's so like if, if listener, if you haven't seen it, um, that is the movie you should spend your evening watching if you have 95 minutes to kill rather than spawn. But <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I wanted to talk, I think, a little bit more about this connection the film has to, you know, the intelligence community. Yes, but also just like like Al Simmons role. Uh, Coliostro is sort of like our our narrator here, he's like guiding us through the, the minutia of the plot and the, you know, the, the, the more complex details of the battle between heaven and hell and the side that he's on and what's happening. And, uh, it, it's a little exhausting. Also Neil Gaiman's character as a side note. Do you, do you know that whole deal? No, no. Tell wasn't us. that, wasn't that Angela? <clears throat> Angela too. There was a, there was a decades-long legal battle between Todd McFarlane and and uh, Neil Gaiman because uh, Neil wrote like episode number nine of Spawn and introduced three characters: Angela uh, Caglarosto, who I am mispronouncing, and <laughs> Medieval Spawn. And they they basically they fought for years over the ownership of the them. I believe Gaiman walked away with Angela. And, uh, you know, uh, just under $2 million. Yeah, hmm. I think you're right. And I don't know if you noticed this, but there is a very brief reference to Angela in like the gala scene. There's like a, a very uh, inexplicable, bizarre kind of like medium shot that sort of zooms in from a, from a high angle on this uh, redheaded woman in a green dress and she turns her head to the to the side and you see that she's wearing the same earrings mm. that Angela wears in the comics. Oh, um, okay. So so there's like this, I, I, and I only noticed it because I, I was watching the film int- attentively enough at this point to be like, I don't know why they did that except that like the director thinks that this person's particularly hot or <laughs> um, wants us to, to see her and, and make call attention to it. So I, I looked it up and I guess that is, it's meant to be a, a little nod to the character of Angela, which knowing now that that character doesn't, uh, doesn't exist in, in the McFarlane universe. Um, I don't know. It's yeah, interesting that it survived. Somehow. Yeah. He's like, this is, this is my little wink and nod. <laughs> <laughs> but to, to get back on, on to the point here, Al Simmons is an assassin. 
a a contract killer or an operative who like works to rid the world of all of America's enemies. And there's just this like incredibly, I want to say incredibly 90s, but it's really just incredibly American uh, sort of like aperture on this particular profession where at the very beginning here, he is, you know, invading some sort of tower and killing all the guards and then setting up these explosives and these sort of like heat seeker missiles to kill what are, you know, just sort of like coded Arab oligarchs or something that, you know, whatever they are. There, there's like you know some some surveillance footage or whatever or you know on his uh, night vision goggles that says like terrorist or something like that. <laughs> uh, but but so he he kills these men and everyone else around and and in another ninety seconds we learn that there were something like a hundred innocent people there as well because the airfield wasn't cleared. But Caliostro in the voiceover shortly after the explosion happens says something like, I used to be just like him, killing killing for good, killing on the side of good. And then I, I sinned and went to hell, but then I redeemed myself and found my way to heaven. And I just like, almost just like ripped all my eyebrow hair out at that moment <laughs> when it was just like, this is a really, really bizarre framing that this guy like clearly, you know, just killed people for the sake of like uh, national interest with, with, you know, it's, it's not a de facto good or bad sort of scenario here. And also we find out killed a ton of innocent people. I think in the director's cut too, there's even like a cutaway where you briefly see like a couple of women and children on the airfield that they, they cut out of this like PG 13 version that made it to theaters. There's so much of that going on here where there's like this very, very Americanized, very, very sort of like centrist, uh, imperial perspective throughout all of it that's like oh there is like a, a a universal de facto good and america is on the side of that and there's a you know also an evil you know this this sort of countervailing force and anything that isn't american is that thing uh, and it's expressed even in like a, a news uh like a news footage after al comes back after five years and and I forget his name now. Martin Sheen's character, Wynn, right? Wynn. Jason, Jason Wynn. Jason Wynn. Right. And so Jason Wynn, uh, you know, has had his his hands on, on you know, the trigger and, and on all these levers here for the last five years, unencumbered, and has created chaos. And it's it's sold to us in a very neat little package that's like, uh, Amer- anti-American sentiment is spreading all over the world from Syria to, to Libya to Nigeria to and, and at this point too this is where I was also like the, the, uh, getting a pit in my stomach where I was like who oh boy okay <laughs> but, <laughs> so, but 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 <laughs> go ahead Pete. I was just gonna say Aaron I, everything you've said so far is true but I don't understand where your objection lies <laughs> <laughs> we are the good guys right right obviously we're the good I guys mean, <laughs> After after twenty years of MCU movies, I'm convinced that the CIA is good. As you should be, Carla. Right. <laughs> See, there you go. I think it's working. Um, I did. I did want to point out that, to your point, uh, Aaron, the the funny thing here is that even when the movie is trying to f- frame the uh, absolutely not CIA as bad, uh, it manages to sideswipe official enemies of the U.S. By, for instance, having North Korea have mm-hmm. a biological weapons facility where they're devising a virus. Yes. And you're like, yep. what? <laughs> huh? Nor do we care that presumably thousands of innocent North Koreans were either murdered or, you know, badly diseased and deformed from these viruses that broke out. Like, that's never dealt with in the movie. We sort of hear that as, you know, a, a voiceover at some point when they're talking about what happened, but we're not supposed to care about that because they're the enemy. I mean, uh, on the one hand, you're you're right. It's minimized. Uh, I will say that that's where the um, that's where uh, actually Al manages to cross Jason Wynn. And uh, because that's the big scenery chewing number two scene uh, where he is telling him that, yeah, that's where we're going to get the 8,000, you know, potentially 8,000 test subjects for how the virus works. Right. Oh, and we're going to steal the, you know, like the virus itself, but unleash it mm-hmm. and see how it works on the on the population. 
populace. So obviously it's framed as evil, but it's minimized, right? It's like, yeah, but this is the one guy. He's evil. Right. Al is good. And he's paying he's paying for Jason Wynn, you know, by going to hell and, and losing his life and blah, blah, blah. And, and you're like, okay, sure. On the one hand, I'll take the fact that this is, you know, this is pre-MCU. So the fact that they probably did not get this get any type of subsidies from the Pentagon in any way, shape or form for Mm -hmm. this movie. And it shows Um, (laughs) (laughs) because they are framing the, and a government agency, absolutely not the CIA as the bad guys. But at the same time, it's also presenting the worldview that the CIA wants you to believe, which is North Korea, bad Middle East, bad, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, like uh, it, I found it really funny that it's on, in Hong Kong because uh, then you can immediately glom onto the fact, oh, that's sort of like close to China, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- I'm not going to say that uh, the the target audience for the Spawn movie is particularly well versed in geopolitics, <laughs> so they're just going to go like China. That's they're sort of weird over there, right? They're bad guys, right? Yeah, it's trying to do the one thing, which is fine. I'll take it uh, because we have not seen that in a long time. I I will also say, yeah, it it also just completely supports the same, the same very imperialistic American viewpoint that all these are enemies and we should, you know, we're we're the good guys. And there's also two. My my favorite thing about this is, you know, beyond the fact that it is just like the, you know, individual bad actor or like, you know, bad apple kind of narrative here in terms of like the villain, you know, not speaking for the the uh, community as a whole or not speaking for this particular organization, right? They even say it's like, it's not the CIA or it's, it's, it's not our organization. It's some sort of shadow consortium that he's putting together within the organization. But, but also that like D.B. Sweeney's character, like in the middle of this film, goes in front of the public and basically just like addresses them and flat out lies to the media to like to like flatten the idea that anything is going wrong and just like minimizes all of the civilian casualties and all of the like nefarious shit that they're doing. And Martin Sheen kind of laughs and he's like, oh, he gives me such good PR. He makes me look so good while I'm being so evil. (laughs) But it's like even even in our fantasies, like we can't rid ourselves of this idea and expectation that like, Oh yeah, like they'll also like lie to us, but it's fine. Like it's just because like he's he's protecting the public from like the things that they shouldn't shouldn't have to hear or don't want to know about. Well, I mean, you say that, and I had I've had on more than one occasion, like while it was happening. You mentioned Ed Snowden, and I remember having conversations with people that you know, like I was like, "Doesn't this worry?" Is like, "No," because you know, blah blah blah, and I was like. I I worked for my brief time in in the intelligence, you know, like intelligence for the Navy. And, you know, I did what I did and blah, blah. But I I never came away thinking, you know, we're we're lying to people for the good of everyone. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just like this is shitty, but this is the shitty situation that I'm in. I don't give a fuck, you know, And, and. Honestly, when Ed Snowden came out with the revelations, I remember talking to somebody and, and they were just like, they got really upset because I was like, I, I actually like to- told them, like, could you imagine like this level of surveillance if we had had this type of surveillance when, for instance, Martin Luther King was around, the civil rights would have never happened. Mm-hmm. It yeah. almost didn't. You know, imagine if they had been able to just from upstream, just immediately nip that in the bud. It it just presents a completely different uh, aspect to all of this. And it, it's it's just sort of really difficult to pierce that bubble because people have been told all their lives that all these things, we do them for your own good. Mm-hmm. And you don't need to know these things because it's bad and it's like yeah because we assassinate people overseas so that you get uh you know uh 0.2% more you know yield on your you know whatever your stocks are or whatever fuck that yes yeah Aaron and I were talking about this the other day that most people you know I would say just sort of your average person does not even think about America beyond our domestic borders until those borders are punctuated, right, by 
migrants or refugees or something like that. And then then we're thinking about it. But for the most part, the, the idea of like a foreign policy is like not a thing that your average American thinks about um, because we're just fed this idea of sort of an ambient, ever present, ominous enemy. And that's all we really need to animate our aggression outward. And the rest we sort of you know, are comfortable having other people do do the worrying and the details and the 800-page surveillance reports and all that. By the way, I love, by uh, Carlo, that you yada, yada, yada your intelligence uh, work <laughs> with the Navy. You're like, uh, yeah, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and uh, here I am. I mean, I, I, I was I was there, and, and I, I've said this before, but uh, I, I did not gel very well with <laughs> with with the position I was in not because I couldn't do the work which is fine I mean most of it was just analysis type stuff and we were still in you know like the Soviet Union so eh, whatever you know you could think I, I thought at the time that I was doing good I realized that it's sort of bullshit but I just did not gel with the structure uh, mm -hmm. of the military and um, eventually I just got uh, the, the most secrets I knew was basically, you know, how how to get a really shiny uh, deck, uh, at, <laughs> you know, when you waxed it. Uh, I, I joke. I used to joke that the, that if the enemy ever caught me, I would I would I would only be able to spill the, the secrets of how to get, you know, like one coat sealant, two coats wax, buff until shiny. There are some people that might pay some pretty good coin for that information. Yeah, we might I have to make this a, a Patreon exclusive now just to make sure that secret doesn't get out for free. Lock it. Lock it, folks. <laughs> so, so do dirty floors bother you, Carlo? Like, have you Not been at all. <laughs> like, honestly, uh, after the Navy, I could give two shits about it. <laughs> we're, cr we're cracking open the inner workings of your... Of, of my your, mind, yeah. Your mind. yeah. This is just a Carlo history podcast now. That's what that's what yeah, we do we on the show. We I just... want to go back to something that Pete said. I totally agree with you, Pete, that this movie is a very distinct cultural artifact of its time. And I was thinking that along the lines of the aesthetics, yes, but also in particular, I couldn't help but think of these other movies. And I'm um I want to put this to you guys because you are so well versed in this space. But I was thinking of movies like. Constantine, like Fallen, The Devil's Advocate. If you want to go in a different direction, there's the movie Michael or a, a dear, dear movie that I love, uh, Angels in the Outfield. City of Angels. City of Angels. There's like, there, there's this whole pantheon of movies, some of which come from comics, others don't, in this time around the mid to late 90s that are dealing with supernatural forces of good and evil. And that the these supernatural forces of good and evil are the reason why bad and good things happen in society it's this sort of like society erasure this the erasure of class the erasure of you know structures of oppression and positing that good and evil can be attributed to um these supernatural forces that exist beyond us and that and that the way to combat those uh, those forces is through individual choices. And this movie says that explicitly at one point. I think Cagliostro, uh, his line more or less to, to Al, to Spawn is, there's a war between heaven and hell and it depends on the choices we make and it requires sacrifice, which is this just perfect crystallization of, of a meritocratic uh, mindset of the 90s that does not look at economic uh, oppression as a factor for people's decisions or, you know, everyone's sort of on the same playing field, right? And if you don't do well, it's your fault. And I found the alley in particular a really interesting place in this movie because it's this landscape of, you know, human suffering. It's this, uh, it's this, you know, sort of homeless encampment, weirdly like scattered among medieval church ruins. And it is the gateway to hell, more or less, right? And, and I found that to be reflective of, oh, hi, Chewy. <laughs> Chewy. Chewy is very much yes. vibing with my argument right now. See, yeah, absolutely. See, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned hell, and uh, I think Chewy's part hellhound, so. Yeah. There we he's, go. 
he's very concerned that the squirrels outside may invade, so he's he's stepped in. <laughs> he's he's your he's guarding the fortress. I totally get it. Um, but but I found this you know this place, the alley, to be inherent with you know. A, a, moral judgment where the the fact that these people are you know living in this place that is the gateway to hell we're supposed to we're supposed to at a certain point uh, have this sense that these people are are not there because uh you know something bad happened to them but they're there because they made bad choices um which again is this very 90s narrative and we still see this in the neoliberal project today at one point, I think Zach says pretty explicitly, like he turns to Spawn and says, you know, sometimes I I lie here and I think, is this hell? And I was like, okay, that does it for me. That's that's more or less, you know, <laughs> what what I took from this movie, that it's sort of in this pantheon of other movies like it that are positing that the, the ills that we face in society are not the problem of a failure of government. There are forces of good and evil that we must contend with. And as individuals, we must sacrifice. And sacrifice means, you know, if you're in a tough spot, you can't rebel. You can't do anything about it. You need to just sort of buck up and deal with it. And those who, uh, who can't make it, are looked upon as uh, undeserving. They're looked upon as evil as as bad as as all the things that society tells us you know these people are meant to meant to represent that's that was my read sort of the best read that i could make of this movie is that i did feel like it was very representative of a political mindset of the time i i think that that's honestly that's a great point yeah. Uh, the alley itself is a liminal area in in the in the movie, right? Because mm-hmm. the violator right. hangs out there, mm-hmm. so he is there, sort of to tempt these people even further. So the fact that he's there, just hanging out. Okay, college people, what's a liminal area? <laughs> I pretended I knew what that was, but I just nodded and and looked at Aaron like I there had no go. clue. <laughs> I know. I know that uh, one of our uh, Discord uh, Discordians uh, would love me using that uh, word. Uh, liminal is just it borders between one state and another. Oh, um, got it. Uh, and I think that you're correct in your summation. It it is something that was in the air because I I mean I just looked up a couple of other things that uh, touched by an angel, the show on CBS. Right, right. Uh, right. The prophecy, which we covered on Podside Picnic, yes, uh, came out the same year. Um, so I think it's something in the air where the perhaps the neoliberal project had be, had gained enough steam that things had become complicated enough that people just didn't know where the handles even were mm-hmm. to to pull to str- try to get government to work for them or or against them or whatever. And so then you just throw throw your hands up and you go, well, it, I guess it's good and evil. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, like if if you look at the point in history, like America had won. We were the mm-hmm. sole superpower. Socialism and communism was were regarded as failed experiments. This was as good it was going to get. So like, who's your villain at that point? Right. right. End of history, baby. Yeah. I I also have a silly point I'd like to make. Please. Please. Okay, well, the the Zach, you know, the kid? Yes. He was Aaron on Full House. <laughs> oh, hey. I, I said that to Aaron. I was like, this kid was a regular on Full House. He was Michelle's friend. And yeah. he's also the son in Apollo 13. That's, what, that's the other thing I knew him from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that Pete and Carlo and Carly, everybody. All of us. I think that you're all so right about this. You know, one other thing that this brought up for me because I, I, I made that connection too and not just with, you know, popular media but also just like uh, adjacent comic properties, right? Like like Carly mentioned Constantine which is both, uh, you know, Hellblazer comics and, and, and also the, the, the film adaptation but also Hellboy. Um, you know, mm-hmm. there there's all of these sort of representations of sort of this inherent ungodliness and this this like pure evil or or at least like they're they're sort of you know this idea of eternal damnation but uh but the hope and prospect of salvation uh with all of these characters and 
I, I couldn't help but disassociate it from, you know, the, the, the sort of trailings and, and, and remnants of the, the satanic panic. And, you know, thinking about how much of our political narrative around that time became less about the failings of people, less about, you know, the evils that that human beings commit and more about the fact that, like, if something bad is happening, if there's like this unspeakable, uh, you know, horror that you're observing, if there's this thing that you can't make sense of. It's it's actually the devil. Mm-hmm. It's actually Satan himself manifesting that thing because humans couldn't possibly do that. There's a lot of this, you know. Even we we covered seven on the show a little while ago, and and it it does a good job, I think, of disassociating and and uh, removing itself from the the idea of a supernatural evil. But it's very much versed in that the the killer is sort of operating from this evangelical religious spiritual perspective of needing to rid the world of this sort of de facto evil and and you know satan's power i actually found an anecdote where the the satanic panic and a lot of the reasons why it was so profoundly devastating and damaging to people came from a lot of the political the political movement of the the late 60s early 70s um when child sexual and physical abuse started to like make its its way into uh, the light of like congressional legislation and i guess walter mondale initially put forth this legislation these this act to try to protect children from uh from being sexually and physically abused by their parents um and and by you know by adults but in order to get the the republican backing that he needed to pass the legislation, they deliberately omitted and reduced the nature of poverty and income inequality and its correlation to to physical abuse and child neglect in the home. Mm-hmm. In fact, Walter Mondale was quoted as, as silencing a, a, a psychologist who brought this point up uh, at the hearing uh, in, in front of, of you know Congress and said, this is not an economic problem. Uh, this is a national problem. God damn it. And and so and so there was all of this sort of like self-help, you know, uh social worker and and NGO kind of uh operation that that was built out of this idea that became a place where, you know, like these these sort of like mandatory reporters and and social workers who were not trained at not asking leading questions to children that eventually evolved into social workers taking the same approach to people who are wrongfully accused of malfeasance simply because they like wear black eyeliner and have their lip pierced not to reduce or, or minimize like, you know, children who are victims, but a lot of people were very wrongfully accused during this time and, and faced real, uh, real damage to their livelihoods and, and to their lives in general during this era, simply because of this sort of evolution of, of this idea that like there is this evil in the world that, that is harming our children. And it has nothing to do with society, as Carly said. It has nothing to do with with the intersection of all of these different horrible things uh, that we permit to exist within our 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 world. It, it has everything to do with just evil. And you see that same thread, you know, trailing. There's there's a direct connection here from the Satanic Panic all the way up to the QAnon conspiracy, you know, like, like it's the same rhetoric. It's rooted in the same sort of like good versus evil, God versus Satan. Uh, you know, this, this, uh, supernatural demonic cabal of people who are, who are there to harm the most innocent in our society. That's a long winded way of simply saying like, I couldn't help but see this film as an evocation of, uh, a lot of those sentiments during the era. It's at once a refutation of a lot of those ideas because it deals in satanic imagery in a way that seems kind of subversive seems like it's trying to like kind of say fuck you to the people who are afraid of of even delving in that space but it does nothing to remove the idea that ultimately the real forces of good and evil are dictated and determined by something beyond humanity yeah i i think that's you i I did want to point out that also the uh, i'm trying to remember the name of the book uh, the repressed memories also factors into that. Yes, yeah, all of that. Uh, I mean, there. The, I think the psychologist that wrote that, like, even like convinced his wife, who was a patient or something, that she was abused as a child or right. something, and it never happened. Yeah, well, it, it, he married the 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 patient. Uh, That's right. After, 
Uh, I'm trying to remember the goddamn name of the book, and I can't remember now. Um, but anyway, yeah, yeah, it, it's definitely one of those um, one of those cases for the uh, for the ethical committee, really. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, this is all of these things sort of like they're all a funnel that led to this whole idea of the end of history. You know, the, the battle between good and evil is now you know enacted mm-hmm. and uh, probably turbocharged like the, I'm trying to remember now um, whether the, uh, uh, those Tim LaHaye books uh, what, left behind. Oh yeah. Uh, God left behind. Those must have been like late nineties, early aughts for sure. Like ninety five. Yeah. So all of this is sort of coming to a head here. So I think that the, like I think that that is absolutely something that is in like in the air at the time. Also, let's not forget that there's like the the millenniums coming up. Right. Uh, and so people are getting antsy about, you know, what's going to happen. You know, I mean, this isn't new. The last millennium, people went a little out of their minds about that too mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know I, I think it's it, it all sort of came to a head and we do have uh that strong strain of like uh sort of very authoritarian evangelism uh coming up what we get here is the comic book version which i'll, I'll repeat again uh todd mcfarland is a enormously dumb guy who is insanely talented in one area which is making comic books uh and perhaps not up to the task of of really writing uh anything that is anything other than uh we solve problems by punching each other in the head uh you know just sort of bad oh it's badass you know that's it uh it's not very clever yeah, the the proto Zack Snyder, as you said, it's it's a very aesthetically appealing thing. I remember, you know, being being a kid in the era of Spawn and even seeing like the trailer to this movie, and feeling those same impulses. Like it's like that looks badass, you know. But I, but but that was as far as it went for me. Like I didn't know what it was about. I didn't understand like you know the 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 trappings of it or, or that it was you know satanic or anything it was just like this looks cool like i like his mask and his cape and i like the demon you know <laughs> like these things are so yeah. neat <laughs> it's it's sort of like a a, a supernatural batman right mm-hmm. uh the, with the gigantic cape and all that stuff uh so it's it's gonna look cool but like you said it, it this appeals to the, the 14 year old and all of us uh it's just like oh that looks badass dude uh <laughs> and that's as as you can see with the movie, that's as far as it goes. <laughs> Pete made me uh, realize that I also wanted to bring up uh, a silly point, which is that I found yes. the... <laughs> I had a lot of silly points that I wrote down as I was, I was watching this, where at one point I, was, I, wrote, I just wrote, okay, literally what are his powers? But that's not the point that I want to bring up, um, or the question. Um, but the when they have that, that sort of convoluted failsafe of having Martin Sheen's character have a pacemaker oh, put God. in him. To, <laughs> I don't. I'm. I'm gonna fuck up talking about what this was about. All I want to bring up is that I found it so insane that they kept him awake during the procedure. I and they were like narrating him through it, where they were like, "Okay, now we're gonna um." Put this fucking thing in your chest. You're gonna you're gonna feel a slight pinch. Feel a slight pinch, and he's like, "Cool, cool, cool." It was so weird, (laughs) so so weird. Well, and that is not how a dead man switch works, man. It (laughs) it broadcasts until you're dead, and it stops. Oh, okay. See, (laughs) see, that makes more sense to me. Yeah. So when he crushed it, he killed us all. Right. Okay. I, so this, well, that was the other thing too. Okay, Pete, I'm really glad you mentioned this because I was like trying not to pull threads <laughs> on this movie because every time I did, I was like, I my brain got garbled. <laughs> but I was I turned to Aaron and I was like, he just destroyed the thing that wasn't supposed to be destroyed because it would set. I I I wasn't. I didn't understand one why he was able to destroy the pacemaker when he like ex- extracted it from his his chest uh, spawn with his um you know laser eyes or whatever the fuck they are and and two why then he all of a sudden lost all gumption for murdering Win like I was like didn't you just take 
the pacemaker out of him so you could murder him? Yeah, you can kill him now. It's a freebie. It's a freebie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and he was like, no, never. I will never kill that man. What's this movie about then? Are you guys familiar with the book The Secret? No, tell us, Pete. Okay, I well, am, Pete. I yeah. read it in college. Oh, boy. I'm okay. sorry. <laughs> Guilty. So Guilty. It, it, the basic idea behind The Secret is it's a self-help book that that's sort of spiritual that posits that if you believe good things and visualize them, they will happen to you. And the instruction manual for Spawn's suit is the fucking secret because he can do anything <laughs> with it. <laughs> That okay. is that is exactly no. That's one it of my really favorite is. exchanges in the entire movie, where Coliostro is like, "You have to concentrate. You have to believe in it. You have to like use your mind, like in your instincts." And then Sp- Sp- Michael J. White just goes, "So that's how it works." <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, "Oh, okay. Like, yeah, great. Thanks. Thank you for helping us out there, guys." Um, Okay, we have a lot of great thesis statements from this conversation. I think my favorite is the necroflesh is the secret. (laughs) There you go. And vice versa, yes. You know, the thing is, the suit needs a little confidence, buddy. You know, you need need to believe in it, and it will believe in you. That's so true. They really wedged that, like, hurried crash course in his powers in at the end. Oh God, I, I I winced when when uh, Cagliostro does like he's just Taz all of a sudden. Yes. <laughs> and I, you're like, what? Huh? I, wrote, I was like, this is a sensei student movie now for like two minutes, and then and he even calls it. A, there is a, a fourth wall moment where he says, uh, "Okay, Yoda," and I was like, "Okay, at least they're acknowledging that this is like silly. This is this is yeah. silly." I just picture Malbogia going, sweep the leg, you know? Sweep the leg. <laughs> <laughs> He's got the biggest Cobra Kai dojo in hell. He's his lips. He's, he yells, sweep the leg. Look, um, let's let's be clear here. He was just using his telepathy, you know? Right. With a jaw like that, he doesn't, he's really able to use his words. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need to articulate. My, the, all of this entire sequence is also wonderful because of that, you know, so that's how it works line. But then also too that like you think you're about to hit like a really important like training montage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he tells him to concentrate and then like throws a bottle and has Spawn hit it with his chains. And then after that, Spawn like grabs a bunch of guns and just says, I don't have time for this old man. I've got to go do something. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's just like gone after that. It's like, uh, okay. No, then Cagliostro says one more sort of like sensei thing to him. And then he goes, okay, I don't, I don't need this shit. And he like gives him all his guns. Right. He gives up the guns. He finally, He learns that, that. That was our training montage. Yeah. <laughs> I did want to see more. I actually did want to see more of his powers. I would imagine that that's one of the things that makes the comics great is all of the cool shit that he could do with his suit. I'm sure that we were we were robbed of a, a couple of Spawn sequels where they would use the cape and his powers mm-hmm. more readily. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sort of interested now in, in going to watch the... They did have an animated uh, version of this oh. uh, on HBO. Todd McFarlane's Spawn. Yes, yes, because, of course, you need to differentiate... Uh, by putting the uh, person's name in front of it. <laughs> right. Like Zack Snyder's Justice League. Hey, right. there you go. Adds to your theory. <laughs> you know, I, I do I do think that the best uh, the best version of this is, uh, what is it, Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> right. A, a complete banger, by the way, but <laughs> that's another story. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I think that's as good a place as any to, to wrap this up. Carlo and Pete from Podside Picnic, thank you again for being here. Thank you again for making us watch this movie. Um, We will remember it for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. It was a 95-minute film. It felt like three hours. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But It's a Snyder Cut, baby. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yes, please do check out Podside Picnic. Uh, Carly and I were on a very recent episode where we chatted with Carlo about one of our favorite blockbusters of of recent years dawn of the planet of the apes um that was a lot of fun guys do you want to um say a little bit more about about your program to our listeners um come listen to podside we have plenty of free episodes (laughs) 
Pete, you want to add to that? Yeah. I am really professional. So, I, I mean, Podside Picnic, we, we, we read what we call literature of the fantastic to give us a wide range. It's fantasy, it's science fiction, it's books and movies. We try and take a critical eye to things and, and have long, meandering discussions about what makes something good. But fundamentally, it's about whether we enjoy it and the fun and, you know, interviewing authors and that kind of thing. So if that's your jam, check us out. It is, in fact, my jam. I, I listen uh, quite frequently. It's awesome. You all are on pretty much every streaming service that, that we've looked for you on, but you're also on Patreon as well. Where can we find you on, on Patreon? It's uh, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. All right. I was hoping so. That's that's easy enough to locate. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, thank you again to Podside Picnic, Carlo and Pete. You've been amazing. Um, as always, we are Hit Factory. You can follow us at Hit Factory Pod. Uh, subscribe at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Shout out to our capitalist overlord, Linda. And uh, we will catch you next time. <laughs>